What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. We like to drop these in between our full episodes, our full episodes, as you know, are a video format as well as podcast, but that video takes a while to edit, especially when you are full-time educator dealing with sub shortages and whole lot of whole lot of everything. Uh, so it, it, it takes a while to get around to that editing. So our next full episode with a super dope guest will be next weekend. Next weekend, we have Zakia Jackson joining us and that, that conversation, we just recorded that conversation today, a very fascinating conversation about the intersections of um, faith-based organizing and educational justice and, and equity and policy and all kinds of dopeness. So you don't want to miss that. Shout out to uh, Zakia and um, and Zakia's mama. Uh, tune in next week to hear to hear about how dope her mama is. Uh, a real doctor in the building. Uh, I'm Dr. Rustin, but that doctor is um, not the same level of doctor as um, some other doctors out there. So in any case, Jeff, it's Saturday. Well, we're recording this on Saturday. Somebody might be listening on their morning commute on a Monday. But um, how you doing, man? How you doing? Oh, Manuel, uh, that question is always a loaded question. It in, is. In these, in these days of COVID. And uh, I feel like every answer to that has an asterisk, much like the, uh, the asterisk that uh, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens should have on their plaques <laughs> in the Hall of Fame, that they have been denied with uh, great hypocrisy by the Baseball Writers Association of America. But I digress. Um, I am doing okay. Doing okay, man. Uh, all things considered, I feel, you know, fortunate uh, to, you know, to be healthy. Yeah. And, um, you know, to, to be in the relative position of comfort and privilege that I enjoy in this world, Manuel. So I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I love that. I love that. Man, I am, I mean, I, I guess we're all tired, but I'm like extra tired right now. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe yesterday, Friday, um, you know, like, like oftentimes I had to cover another class during my, my off period, but then I also had like a student, student group meeting during lunch. So it was like from eight in the morning to three forty PM double masked up with lots of people in my room, like the whole time without really hardly any, any gap at all. So maybe that's why I'm extra tired today. Uh, but it was a good week. It was a good week. Attendance is almost, almost fully back restored to pre-Omicron levels, at least at my school site. Um, not that we're out of the woods because we're far from that, but yeah, otherwise doing all right. But Jeff, we have to, I don't, shouldn't have taken this long, actually, should have led the show with this, but we have to address the the big looming question from our most recent passing period. Um, you know, we had, you brought up, you brought up this uh, ostrich with their head in the sand um, type of metaphor for how we are behaving around whatever we were talking about at the time. But, you know, I asked, do, do ostriches really do that? And you weren't quite sure. I certainly hadn't seen video or really anything of uh, showing ostriches just like chilling with their head ducked in the sand <laughs> because like that seems like a weird position just to exist in. And uh, we asked the ALTA yeah. family for, for help there. And, you know, as of the end of that show, we really didn't know. But almost... Almost immediately, one of our ALTA family members out there, uh, Danny Wu, hopped on Twitter to let us know, like, hey, y'all, that's a myth. Um, he wrote that, um, and I'm quoting from Danny Wu here. I don't know if he's an expert in, in ostriches, but I know he's a UCLA Bruin, so I could only assume he knows what he's talking about. Uh, he wrote, um, <laughs> ostriches will dig hole in the ground 
holes in the ground for their eggs and will periodically stick their head in to rotate the eggs. So that coming from Isle Bruin, I assume just we got to accept that as fact. So mystery solved, Jeff. I think we're good here now. <laughs> Crisis averted. Mystery solved. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is, um, this is one of the beautiful things about the all the above uh, greater family unit Manuel is uh we got each other's backs and uh shout out to Danny Wu for uh helping us better understand our ostrich neighbors and um Manuel I have to ask have you ever in person seen an ostrich if I have it must have been when I was a kid probably at a zoo or something because I can't like just off the top of my head remember so I'm not quite sure they seem big and powerful though yeah no they're they are like so I went to an ostrich farm that had ostriches and emus uh, a couple of years back. And um, I have to say, you remember when Jurassic Park came out and, and they were like, it was kind of the like nerdy science angle in the movie that like dinosaurs are, were birds or like related right. to birds, you know, or whatever. And, and like, I think most regular people like didn't know. And it was cool because like the velociraptor, right, which means bird, right, was like sort of the stars of the movie or whatever. When I saw this ostrich in real life, I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. Like, <laughs> that's that thing is a freaking dinosaur. <laughs> and, yeah. And like. If we had to fight, like, I'm probably going down, dude. Like, first of all, they're, like, eight feet tall and, like, 400 pounds, and they run, like, 30 Damn. miles an hour, and they have these feet that look like freaking dinosaur feet, dude. <laughs> like, and, uh, and you, they sort of, like, if they get a little agitated, they sort of do this plumey thing where they kind of kind of peacock a little bit or something oh, wow. and, and sort of walk towards you and... And you're just like, oh, yeah, if this thing was upset with me, it would be a real bad day for me, dude. Like, it's, like, it's not going to work out well. So um, the moral of the story is don't mess around with ostriches. <laughs> and, uh, and they don't stick their head in the sands as just a way of, of being. But it's still a great metaphor. It's very visual, I think. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I don't remember the exact reason for that coming up in the last discussion we had, but I do know we're discussing these um, horribly racist laws that are being passed everywhere. But uh, I think most recently Florida and, um, you know, somebody commented on one of our YouTube videos. I don't remember which video it is. We get like random comments on like old videos and they are almost always um, of the really racist, terrible comment variety. And somebody left a comment about like us continuing to talk about race and racism just keeps it going. Like we got to get to a point where we don't keep talking about race because us doing that just further divides and this and that, whatever. And, you know, maybe that, maybe that person made it, was making a point. I'm thinking, okay, maybe we need to stop talking about race and also stop talking about the pandemic because, you know, we keep on about this pandemic. Maybe it's time for us just to, you know, quote unquote, move on, Jeff. So I think we could solve racism and pandemic by not talking about either one today, Jeff, I think, I think I might be solving some of our major, major issues in this country by demanding that we not talk about racism or pandemic this episode, Jeff. I want to talk about something unifying, something that like just brings us all together. How about we just talk about just the wonderful world of teaching and how great everything is currently in the teaching profession, Jeff. Let's be positive and assets-minded 
this episode, Jeff. I demand it. Okay. So what are we going to talk about, Jeff? What do we got? What's our story about this robust teaching profession that we have here? Well, I would just like to introduce everyone to my new co-host, uh, Pollyanna, here. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and uh, play the glad game, uh, I guess, with the show. Um, shout out to uh, those out there who, who have seen Pollyanna. Um, so, you know, Manuel, we... we I think we have a really interesting story today, both from the standpoint of what it is, or a really interesting topic for today, both from the standpoint of what is what it's talking about and the kind of research base it's drawing around. And then also because I think it's going to give us an opportunity to share some of our perspectives on on like what we think about this as you know career educators and, and folks who often don't necessarily get the the primary voice in these kinds of policy decisions. So um, so this topic that I'm referring to is the kind of, um, you know, sort of cloud hanging over education in lots of ways right now, which is the, the teacher shortage, but how districts can and should and are in some cases responding to the teacher shortage um, in ways to like help address it, right? Um, and so there was a, a, a really interesting piece in um, EdSource this week. Shout out to Diana Lambert, uh, who wrote this piece entitled California School Districts Improve Pay Working Conditions to Ease Teacher Shortage. Um, and the, you know, the article was both reporting on some things that districts are doing and also citing um, a new study um, that has, or a new report, I guess you would say, that has come out um, also this week from the Learning Policy Institute, shout out to them, um, written by Desiree Carver-Thomas, uh, Dion Burns, Melanie Lung, and uh, Naomi Andrasek. I hope I pronounced everyone's names correctly. Apologize if I did not. Um, and this report, it studied... Um, a number of schools uh, across 12 different districts over the last 18 months um, of the pandemic and kind of looked at um, what the impacts of teacher shortages and staffing issues had been and then make some policy recommendations for uh, district leaders, policymakers, folks at the federal level to consider. Um, and I have to say, you know, not all of it was particularly revolutionary or groundbreaking, right? Some of it's the basic stuff you'd expect, like hey, if we should raise pay, <laughs> uh, like we do with every job when there's a shortage. Um, but there were other things that were, you know, more systemic um, kind of policy wonky types of stuff that I, I bet most people might not be thinking about, like what is the teacher pipeline from, say, community college to bachelor's degree to, you know, to teacher residency to master's degree to staying in the profession for 10, 20 years rather than, you know, teach uh, the kind of Teach for America emergency credential model of teach for two plus years and then leave. So... Um, so interesting stuff in here, Manuel, and just to get to give folks a little bit of a, a, a summary of what they recommended, um, of course, and I wholeheartedly agree, they talked about uh, that policymakers should increase teacher compensation um, in the form of salaries, um, also offer, offering things like stipends and bonuses for especially for hard to fill positions. 
Um, they talked about increasing teacher pipeline by starting residency programs. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, a teacher residency is the idea that a person who is aspiring to become a teacher gets into this, quote, residency program where they are simultaneously teaching, um, they're simultaneously studying, usually for a master's degree um, and a teaching credential, at the same time as they are they are kind of doing their student teaching or, or taking on increasing teaching responsibilities at a school site with like mentorship from a staff member and from a, um, a higher ed program that they're engaged in and um, that they do that with uh, like heavy subsidies, right? So uh, subsidized tuition plus, or in some cases free tuition plus a, um, a living stipend that gives them um, not a full salary, but like, you know, a good chunk of money to live off of, right? So it's, it's a, it's a, should be a big financial incentive um, and take off a lot of the financial pressure of folks pursuing teaching careers. Um, so that was one of the recommendations to expand those. They advocated for more federal government um, spending to uh, make college debt free for folks who become educators. Um, that uh, we should have more kind of infrastructure around folks to navigate the licensing and credentialing um, pathway, uh, which anyone who's tried to become an educator in this country knows can be complex to say the least. Um, and especially if you're someone who lives in a rural area or farther away from a college, um, that can be a lot harder to navigate. Um, and then they also talked about things like just increasing enrollment, right? Like we need more people, we need to be producing more teachers. So we got to up enrollment um, in our teacher ed programs or even create new teacher ed programs um, in, in different parts of states or the country. So um, there's more, but we'll kind of just pause there because that, that's the gist. Um, so Manuel, um, you know, as someone who's been covering classes a lot lately <laughs> and experiencing one of the ripple effects of the teacher ed shortage. Um, what do you think about these policy recommendations? And um, do you, are there other things that you think we should be talking about as potential policy solutions to help address this, uh, this kind of ex COVID exacerbated teacher shortage issue? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of these policy ideas are, are actually really, really sound. And in a perfect world, if we implemented all of these, like I think we would be able to make really just leaps and bounds in addressing the current shortage for sure. Uh, I guess one place where I struggle is just on like the working conditions part of it, because I think, it, you know, it's, it's one thing to get someone into the profession and it's a entirely different thing matter to like keep them in the profession um, mm -hmm. long term. And so much of our conversations right now around teacher shortages and teacher recruitment and retention are sort of within the realm of the COVID-19 just realities that, that we are dealing with. And one reason, you know, cited in the report for like for current vacancies is that, you know, a lot of folks left because of COVID. Um, a lot of new positions were created with using COVID funds. And I guess I am forever, forever like 
marked by those years of like economic recession, great recession back in, you know, 08, 09, 10, 11, when so many teachers were being pink slipped and cut myself pink slips three or four times. And I can't ever just think of anything without thinking like what happens when the money dries back up because it was dry back then. And a lot of folks who invested a lot into becoming teachers uh, were sent walking. And right now, as these in some, certain districts, certain areas, as new positions get created uh, to uh, with COVID funds to support uh, students and alleviate some of the burden on teachers, as all this stuff gets created and things like expand in terms of what resources and support systems are, are at schools, I just, I can't help but wonder what happens when, when that money dries up, what happens when this extra COVID money dries up and, and when schools start having to slash again, slash this and slash that, because to me that, whatever we do regarding teacher working conditions now, like when the money dries up and things have to be cut and slashed again, um, what safeguards do we have to like prevent working conditions from getting worse uh, down there? Or if we improve them now, what safeguards are there to, to keep them in a good place? So I, I worry about that. A lot of these recommendations have to do with, with funding, compensation. And I absolutely, absolutely, like and any student that I have, whoever tells me that they're considering uh, enlisting in the military after high school, like all of them, like a hundred percent of them say something along the lines of how, like, you know, if they do this and do that, it's going to help them pay for college. A lot of them like, do this, do that. It's going to help them get a career. A lot of them are at least partially, at least partially motivated by the financial uh, benefits and compensation. And I haven't ever heard a student ever who's told me that they're thinking about being teachers or going into education. I've never heard them say, um, you know, if they pursue this and pursue that, it'll help pay for their college because it's, that just hasn't been a thing. So I fully support the notion that we absolutely need to build teaching pathways that help students like avoid college debt. Like I, I would love it to be a world where students know that if they pursue a career in education, like they're not going to have to pay for college and they're gonna be financially supported. And I just imagine how many folks who perhaps weren't really considering teaching might start considering it as high schoolers or as like, you know, few first few years out of high school who might start considering it if they knew that it wouldn't place a financial burden on them to get in there. And also, of course, there's always the narrative that teachers are underpaid, which they are. I shouldn't call it a narrative. There's always the reality that teachers are historically underpaid. And if we could do something about that and shift the discussion so that young people can see teaching as something that won't be a college debt burden and that will end with fair and just compensation for them so that they could have a stable career and raise a family and all that, I think that would do wonders. So. I absolutely support the all elements of these recommendations that have to do with making it easier for folks to pursue a teaching career, uh, making it easier for them to afford college and make it easier for them to pay off their debt if they already have accumulated debt in college. And especially the one that stands out to me is these uh, the idea of, at least in California, I don't know what it's like in other states, but having a... A uh, pathway towards teaching that begins at the community college level, because I know that I would, I personally would love to be involved in teacher education. I'm not going to leave my high school classroom for it. And I know there are high school teachers who also teach like in a teacher ed program, um, you know, in evenings or weekends or whatever. But I would love to do that at the community college level, especially at my school where we are a dual enrollment school. Like we have students who take 
college level classes through Pasadena City College. And I would love to teach a class about the, you know, the teaching profession or, you know, anything around education, education theory and this and that, but they don't really exist. And is to my knowledge, the only real like footprint that education careers have in the community college level are like early childhood educator um, classes for like, you know, preschool educators and, and what have you. And I don't, that's that's not what I could teach or or have a background in or I'm interested in. So I would love to see uh, pathways starting at the community college level that could be built for folks like myself to you know maybe teach some dual enrollment classes and help students explore a career in teaching. But right now those are I I just don't see them in California. I don't know if you've seen them, Jeff, in other states or or what have you. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean on the on the I. Overall, yes, these these ideas uh, from this Learning Policy Institute report, I really think they are very sound. I think they would go a very long way to addressing some of our challenges. But the overall bigger challenge of what happens when the money dries up, what do those working conditions look like? I, I don't think that's really addressed here. Not that it's supposed to be addressed here, but yeah, I think that's still a wondering that I have. Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of what you said there resonates with me. Um, you know, I do think at the risk of sort of like stating the obvious, right? Um, we we have to pay teachers more, um, and that is that is how it's it's always funny to me in America how the corporate sphere, right? Like they talk, well, oh, we can't, you know. There's no way we could get a, a investment banker for less than two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year. I, you know, I'm just pulling a number up here. I don't know how much these folks actually make, but they speak with such certainty and righteous indignation about how, like, there's no way you could have a, you know, hedge fund attorney who's making less than seven hundred thousand dollars a year. Who would? Who would? We couldn't be competitive if we, you know, <laughs> if we didn't offer this money. And I'm like. You know, it's it's just very revealing about our sort of moral calculus in our capitalist society here. But we need to pay teachers more, definitively, absolutely, in just about every context in this country, teachers are dramatically underpaid. So that, I think, we should just be like, period, end of sentence. <laughs> like, if we do this, it would go a long way. And... Yeah, I think everything that's in this report around pipeline stuff is really interesting for all the reasons you said. But I do think the the retention issue is a bigger one than we are giving it uh, than we're giving it credit for uh, for being right now. And um, we, the reality is, I think there are a lot of reasons why teaching is either a difficult profession to sustain for people um, or. Uh, you know, has just become so hard emotionally and um, and just kind of like in terms of working conditions that uh, people can't sustain. And um, we need to do some concrete things around work conditions that I think are are uh, are not being explored well enough. So we've talked a bunch over the years, Manuel, on the show about the fact that. Globally, American teachers teach a lot more time during the day, like they are responsible for supervising kids and conducting classroom instruction uh, at a rate that is very compromising to their ability to get good at their profession, right? Um, So, and it's, I think a lot of people who do other kinds of jobs, like it's hard 
in some ways, I think, for people to like to understand this. But as someone who has both been a school-based, you know, a teacher, and an administrator, and worked in other roles in education, right? Um, so I'll give you an example, right? I facilitated a 90-minute seminar for a group of teacher leaders this past week, right? And I probably spent, Manuel, over the course of several weeks meeting with uh, some colleagues and doing, you know, different prep, prep for the agenda, prepping slides, prepping handouts and materials, coordinating who's going to present with some of the other the teacher leaders who are going to share some of their practice. I mean, I probably spent 20 hours preparing for that. Now, I just, you know, I would have to go back and check my calendar, but I would say 20 hours is probably a, a fair assumption of the amount of prep time that I took for that 90-minute seminar. And I'm 100% certain that you've never gotten 20 hours to prepare for one 90-minute lesson <laughs> in, nah, in your teaching nah. career ever, right? Like ever. Now, there's it's probably not reasonable for us to have a 20 to 1, you know, or 20 to 1 and a half ratio just as like a profession, right? That's not possible. And it's also probably not necessary in the same way. But it speaks to the fact that like when I, in other contexts, when we want something, a learning experience to be really good, we, we take and we give way more prep time to the people who are responsible for uh, preparing for that, um, that situation than we do to classroom teachers who are on, you know, on performing. There's a performance aspect of teaching and they're on performing five, six, seven hours a day, right? And like, even if we think about people who are professional performers, actors on Broadway, right? They might do six shows a week, right? Or perform six days a week. Maybe they're doing seven shows because they got the matinee on the weekend, right? So they might do seven shows a week, but they're not performing for seven hours a day, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And and they're doing the exact same thing repetitively, which I don't mean to be any kind of like insult to their tremendous artistry and skill. I'm, I'm just saying like and teachers are being asked, to, you're being asked to, to do the performance of great U.S. history lesson, great world history lesson, great ethnic studies lesson, homeroom, other duties you might have, right? And most teachers have multiple preps that they're preparing for a day that then change every day or most days in terms of what kids are learning. So it's, it's, that's a very difficult thing to be good at and feel a high degree of efficacy in over time and see great results, given all the other factors around teachers, without changing those working conditions. And so I think we got to start thinking about policy solutions that get to those working conditions, right? That say, like, all right, teachers should have no more than two preps. And... Um, you know, and maybe at elementary that's different. I don't, you know, we can debate that, but definitely at the secondary level, like no more than two preps. Teachers shouldn't be teaching more than like three, four periods a day, right? And so how do we need to organize a profession around those kind of constructs? Because those are the conditions to be successful in your role that we should have in place? How do we structure the profession around that? And, you know, it gets expensive, I'm sure, on some level, right? It means hiring more teachers. It means, you know, potentially having more space um, in schools or those sorts of things. But um, 
I don't know, man. I, I think we got to start going down that road if we're going to be able to, to like say this is a really attractive profession for people. Yeah. Now, I agree with you there. And as you were talking about the performance aspect of it in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's why I get so physically tired, because that's always been such a big part of my own practice. Like, you know, folks from my my regular outside of the teaching world life, like, you know, probably can't picture me in my classroom because I'm such a like reserved, rather quiet, introverted type dude. But but in the classroom, like, yeah, I'm I'm everywhere. I'm definitely on my feet the whole time. But like, I'm everywhere. I'm bringing the energy so much of it all period because I learned in year one how infectious that is and how much of a difference that makes in terms of just classroom atmosphere and, and buy-in and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, that's exhausting stuff, man. I'm also thinking as you were speaking, I was also thinking about a teacher that, or a long-term sub who um, recently reached out to me about wanting to be a teacher, someone who hadn't really thought about teaching before, but now has this long-term subbing um, temporary position. And now was like, yo, I think I wanna do this. And my struggle to help the person find like a good fit in terms of, um, you know, certification in this and that, because the pathways are not diverse enough. There's like, they're really rigid. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell this person, like, you got to go back to, I mean, this person already uh, graduated school and has a, a advanced degree in, in something that's not education related. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell this person and like, they got to go back to school and pay full tuition and do all this other extra stuff. Cause it's like, man, that's who wants to do all that. And I wish there was just like homegrown, uh, homegrown uh, situations within, you know, our district or within the uh, County office of education or whatever for, for folks like that to seamlessly kind of work towards their credentialing and certification while continuing to be long-term sub in a way that won't cost them a way that won't say like, Oh, you got to apply to this program and this other school and do this stuff or, and, you know, jump through all these hoops because you lose a lot of people that way. So yeah, man. And, and then at the end of the day, you do all that. And then it's like, oh, wait, but these working conditions aren't what you thought they were, huh? It was fun and exciting at first as you were interacting with students and doing your own thing. And then and then you got your schedule for the next school year where you're teaching three or four different topics and you're doing this and you're doing that. And by the way, you got to cover the Spanish teacher during your off period or this and that. And, it's, and then it's like, okay, never mind. I thought it sounded great, but no. So yeah, um, work to be done for sure. Work to be done. I am hopeful that I, I feel like maybe it's just maybe it's just me and this is anecdotal, but I just feel like these conversations are um, we're having more of these conversations than we used to, uh, especially more of these conversations than we did like, you know, four or five years ago. Conversations around uh, recruitment and retention of teachers. I think if anything, the pandemic has uh, sent the, the alert to districts across the nation that like oh, you, your staffing situation is is becoming a mess and it, it might become untenable. So perhaps that alone will get some of these uh, policy moves that should have happened a long time ago, frankly. Like, you know, any teacher that's out there Man, I've been a full-time teacher for all these years, and there's so many other full-time teachers out there. Like anybody out there that's teaching full-time, like first things first, like they shouldn't have any damn student debt. Like to me, that seems like the easiest thing. Like, I don't, and I don't mean like go through the whole process of the, you know, public service loan forgiveness and all that. I just mean like straight up, like, oh, your district said that you've been working there for five years. Okay, here's here's your loan forgiveness. Like just easy, straight up, like that, just a starting place. But. Yeah, um, hopefully this these conversations are taking place. Um, hopefully they actually are taking place more than they used to. That's what it feels like to me. And hopefully that leads to some sort of, um, you know, positive pol policy changes that can help grow our profession, especially 
we didn't even talk about this yet, and I don't even want to open it up right now, but like, especially in the face of um, so many areas where it has become downright dangerous to teach on its history, downright dangerous to teach about slavery or the Holocaust or whatever. So, um, you know, that's an added burden, an added challenge that teachers are facing in certain states that um, that just probably makes this whole thing even worse. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 No, I, I think... Um you know we are we are moving into an era, man. Well, we're I think we're being forced to confront some some of these big questions, right? Of like, we everyone likes to say it's very politically safe to say, oh, our teachers, you know, there's a certain professions that it, it's it's like the right thing to do to like them, like teachers and nurses and you know doctors and um, I don't know. There's probably some others I'm forgetting, right? But that, that like everyone loves to say, oh yeah, oh I could never do that. That's so you're just a saint. It's amazing, yeah. right? But like with teachers, we we have never walked the talk as a as a people of actually respecting, and I would say educators generally. Uh, it's it may be. I was going to say maybe most acute with teachers, but it's probably not most acute with teachers, probably most acute with like TAs and paraprofessionals, right? Because um, they really don't get paid enough. But uh, but there's, with educators, there's there's sort of like the way we like to talk and feel about them. And then there's the reality of how we respect their professionalism. And there's always been a big gap there. And I think with these shortages, we're now, you know, and, and the stress that this is putting on the system um, and the very clear reality we're seeing of like, oh yeah, this whole capitalist enterprise depends on the educators to watch the kids all day, <laughs> yep. right? Um, and and the, the clarity that this has given us about uh, whose work is actually essential and whose work is not essential. Um, and, you know, the, I shouldn't say whose work is not essential because... Uh, you know, lots of everyone's work is important in different ways, but like um, whose work is is like utterly essential in order for other people to do their work. Right. And educators are right up there. Right. Um, and I think we're going to be confronted with some of these questions in new ways now. And we, I think we have to think real boldly about them, man, because um, the fact of the matter is we don't just want warm bodies in classrooms to take attendance, right? Like we are wanting great, powerful, impactful things to be happening in classrooms and we need good people, we need passionate people, we need highly skilled people and we have to both make sure we're getting them in the first place and then keep them when they're there and what we're doing now ain't working and or certainly not working well enough. You know, it's there's too many ways that that can break down or too many, you know, sort of um, holes in the system right now that, that means like that is increasingly more the exception than it is the rule and uh, we're, we're going to have to do something about it. So I, I'm actually excited to see the potential for some really great things to happen as a result of this. I just hope we, we, we go sort of far enough in the direction of change that we need. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. Shout out to uh, Learning Policy Institute for that report, as well as uh, EdSource for bringing it to our attention. And um, yeah, Jeff, I think that about does it for this week's passing period. Uh, anything else before we get out of here? Uh, nope. I think we're, we're good, man. Stay safe, everybody. Uh, wear your N95s and, uh, you know, 
do what you got to do to to keep yourself and your loved ones healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know not everybody in the AOTA family is a sports fan. And I know, especially those of you who are, you're not all 49er fans. Oh, here we but go. But I just want to, before we get out of here, before we get out of here, I just want to say, you know, if, if you know, perhaps some way, somehow, my 49ers overcome the odds and, and win one more game, that will be on Sunday. You might be listening to this after this game's already over. I don't know. But um, I don't live very far from SoFi Stadium, which is where the uh, Super Bowl will be. And uh, I would very much appreciate the support of the AOTA family to send your favorite teacher's favorite teacher to the Super Bowl should his 49ers make it. Uh, so that, you know, Jeff, we might have to cancel all the future episodes and just organize <laughs> around that if necessary. We'll start a GoFundMe for uh, <laughs> something. Send Dr. Rustin to the, <laughs> to the Super Bowl. Okay. Something, all right. Something. We'll see. Nah. We'll see. I kid. I kid. But uh, folks, we really do appreciate Everybody out there for listening and uh, being part of these conversations with us. And definitely we hope everybody, uh, whether you are in the classroom, at the school district, or just interested in education, and that's why you listen and follow. Uh, we just hope all of y'all are, um, you know, hanging in there and, and doing well. And we very much extend our love and appreciation, appreciation to all of you out there. And we very much hope that everybody has a wonderful week ahead. All right. So we'll catch you next week. We love y'all. Now go ahead and get to class.